Hello, Internet. My name is Walter Ciades Fedchuk, and welcome back to the Final Cut podcast presented by the Rough Drafts Podcast Network. We are thick in Oscar season as my co-host and I try to get through uh, some of the best picture nominations. Um, You know, I don't think we're going to get through all of them or even the ones that we're planning on by the time the awards are announced, uh, just like last year. But we are trying, and I do think we are going to take a little bit of a a diverted path uh, after the next episode uh, because Chase wants me to see the fucking Cocaine Bear movie. So I guess we're going to do Cocaine Bear in like a month. So be prepared for that. Uh, and of course, when I say Chase and co-host, I do mean Chase Wassner, my lovely co-host and and the person that if I was going to be in a foxhole with, it would be him. How you doing today, buddy? Don't put that on me. Absolutely don't put that on me. I don't want to be anywhere near a foxhole, and I certainly don't want anyone I care about to be in a foxhole if I somehow get stuck in one. I think I want better for my friends and the people around me. Um, but otherwise, I'm doing good, you know? It's, I, it is raining here in L.A., which never happens, so that's a, a nice little change of pace. I even hear rumors that there's some snow not too far from me, which is absolutely wild for late February. So uh, things are topsy-turvy, but I've got some fun plans to look forward to this weekend, and we've got a very interesting movie to talk about today. Interesting is is holding a lot of bandwidth there, I think. Uh, It is... It is funny how uh, how everything comes back to weather with us because you are experiencing a little bit of the winter. Uh, I know L.A. really doesn't get seasons, but I guess rain and, and you know, what, 50 degrees is kind of what winter is for you guys. So, <laughs> yeah. We can uh, have a little bit of winter as a treat. Um, that's where we're it, at. See, you get to enjoy that, and I get three days of an ice storm that completely destroyed my sinuses for a week and a half. So it's great. Everything peters out. Everything pans out very well. And I still am not excited to to move to Florida. I'd much rather stay here in upstate New York. Uh, But Chase, the interesting movie that we are discussing today is All Quiet on the Western Front. Not All's Quiet on the Western Front. All quiet on the western front i'm gonna get that confused probably numerous times uh, throughout the course of this episode and i do want to open with just a, a little bit of a content warning uh i know chase and i are probably not going to go in in very gruesome detail about you know uh about injuries to body parts or anything like that because frankly this movie doesn't do a ton of that very gratuitous uh, uh violence that you might expect from kind of an American war movie. Um, But we are talking about war. Uh, We are talking about uh, violence. And um, that may be uh, that may be triggering for some people. So if you don't want to watch this episode because it's a war movie, uh, thanks for listening to the first four minutes of it so far. We appreciate the view, but we're not going to be offended uh, if this is a little bit too much for you. However, those of you that do make it to the end, I'm going to have Chase give me his top three dog breeds as a little bit of a treat to you guys. And I'll give mine as well. It's totally on the spot. Chase is probably not prepared for this. But I think if you get through this movie with us, you guys deserve a little bit of a treat. Uh, Chase. Yes. With that being said, Mm -hmm. as an English literature person, I'm going to assume you have read this book at least once in your life. So coming into the movie... What were sort of your kind of broad expectations? I mean, the thing about All Quiet on the Western Front is that it is a a book and a a movie, right? This is not the first time that this has been converted into a movie. In fact, it's not the first time that it has been converted into a movie that was nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Um, It is a German uh, war novel uh, covering essentially uh, World War I in a way that was incredibly dangerous at the time. You know, the book was published in 1928, uh, which I'm not sure um, uh, how much you know about the rise of Nazism in the path to World War II, 
that the Germans went on. But this is about when you start seeing the idea of like, well, we need another war to start reclaiming our lost dignity, right? Things have gone so badly for us in the decades since the war ended, in which because of the uh, incredibly harsh uh, restrictions placed upon us due to the Treaty of Versailles, we have been absolutely handicapped in our economy is falling apart and our leadership is pretty inept, all things considered. And so there was starting to be a movement that this, um, that this book would be, uh, running completely opposed against. And in fact, this book was often burned in Nazi Germany because it was seen as uh, pacifist in a, a time in which that was a harsh negative within the culture of its era. Um, this is a book written by someone who has been to war, who saw this firsthand and understands how much it sucks, not just because um, war is awful, but also, as the book points out a little bit more than the film does, that you can't really go back after it's done. It is the kind of scarring traumatizing experience in which you watch thousands of people, anyone that you care about that you spend time with almost certainly dies. And you spend every day knowing that you might be next and not just that you'll die, but that you'll die in this painful meat grinder or from chemical attacks or from you know, the early tanks that were just crushing people in a way that no one had seen before, right? Like, there are few places in world history, if there is any place in world history, worse than being on the front line in World War I. And All Quiet on the Western Front as a novel understands all of that and does so brilliantly. There's a reason it's still taught in many schools today. It is honest about the brutality of the the environment that they endured and really tries to hammer in that there is no glory to be found here right war is not a place in which you prove your manhood or you achieve some great feat that people will write about in stories the way that it was often presented in the pre-World War I days, before a lot of the technology that was put into use here that made it so particularly gruesome uh, had come to pass. There's just death and bloodshed and pain and suffering and more death, and it's all pointless. And that's the point. And to that end, all of that uh, very much reflected in the film that we got to see here. Uh, you know, it's directed by a German director. It has a German cast. May have done uh, a little bit of a whoops. Um, watched it in English accidentally, um, which mostly just came from me not thinking about it in, in all reality. I, I hadn't paid attention to... Um, who was behind it. I hadn't seen that it was in best international feature in addition to best picture. And I just went with what Netflix sent me on. And that was a mistake. Uh, so don't make that mistake. If, uh, if you are planning to watch it after this episode. Um, but I should have known because it's a quintessentially German portrayal of a war experience that is about as awful as it could possibly get. And given the modern culture we find ourselves in and the way in which we regularly see nations like, I don't know, Russia try to reclaim some national pride through war, uh, it is a prescient reminder that there is no pride to be found here. It is kind of incredible, the sort of historical context of world war one and how people you know discuss well you know it was called the great war it was called the war to end all wars and then you know less than 20 years later we get world war ii like hey what 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 the hell happened 
And it is one of those things that I, I am a war movie guy. I am an, I am a history guy. You know, um, when you talk about World War One and World War Two in you know European history, once you get into high school and college and kind of advanced discussion, so much of World War One is the preamble to World War Two, and it sort of gets lost kind of in the discussions of mid. Uh, mid 20th century European history. World War One can be very sort of easy to gloss over because you go, well, it started with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and basically it was the culmination of all of these alliances and marriages and, you know, intermingling that basically set everybody, uh, everybody against each other. And I will say I do agree with the moniker with the last, you know, the last great war, because it is the last war of sort of the 19th century and prior. This very, you know, we, we line up on one side of the field and we fire at each other and we go and we go and we go until one side pushes, you know, past the other and the side retreats and so on and so forth. It very much has that mindset. However, it has 20th century technology. It has, it, it, the big thing is that it is kind of the debut of the machine gun. And that sort of line up and run, you know, run across at your opponent doesn't work when you're able to fire, you know, a hundred bullets a minute, you know, in a line and just sweep and uh, clear people out. You don't really discuss that in a history class. You kind of go, yeah, there's these kind of key points in the battle lines, and, and you know, obviously discussing the Western Front, uh, and then the end, the Treaty of Versailles, how Germany basically gets completely fucked over. Um, which I think there is a scene later in the film that kind of really emphasizes that of how much Germany gets fucked over and how much the allies, the, the, you know, the Western powers really just don't give a shit. They go, no, 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 it's your fault. Even though frankly, it's not really Germany's fault that World War I starts. Sure. Uh, and then isn't. how, and then how the Treaty of Versailles leads to the the collapse of the uh the the german economy and the rise of nazi germany and boom now we are into world war ii and the holocaust and the rise of hitler and world war one kind of gets laid by the wayside uh so i was kind of intrigued but you know getting a view getting a motion picture view on world war one uh, i never uh read all quiet on the western front i think the book that we covered in my english class instead was the things they carried uh which is kind of a view of an american soldier instead uh and i believe that was vietnam but it may have also been the pacific during world war ii i, I don't remember off the top of my head uh, so i was kind of intrigued to sort of see how we are going to betray uh world one battlefield uh i never watched 1917 so again i was like all right, what is World War One? Uh, and this is not a Saving Private Ryan. This is not a uh, Flags of Our Fathers. This is not an American style war film where there is, you know, these heroes that are that are trying to accomplish something. Uh, this is a very, very. I I I don't want to say depressing, but this is a very conscientious film about what war is truly like um you can say depressing it's soul crushing that's the whole point the point is that it was an experience that we forced an entire generation of men to endure um and both you know on, on both the allies and axis side that none of them ever recovered from that straight up broke the brains of a generation such that everything that came to pass afterwards would happen. It is a profound tragedy and a waste of life for basically no purpose, right? There, you would find tens of thousands of people dying in single battles so that a country could gain a few feet of ground on the front line. That's it. Like thousands of people dead to barely move the line you know, a, a noticeable degree just so they can say they made any amount of progress. Just bodies to the meat grinder. I It is bleak. And this film does not look away from that bleakness. In fact, it wants to remind you of it at every turn because that's what this war was. 
it's what all wars are to a certain extent, especially modern wars. But this war especially, there was no glory or honor to be found here. Just bodies upon bodies upon bodies. And that's why the film's smart to start with that, right? The very first thing we see are just the piles of bodies that exist. The monotony of going through and taking out these dog tags to save to the side so that you could report to all of these families how many people had been lost for no value most of the time. And what, as if value can exist in a war like this, you know? But even even then, some just absolutely futile efforts. Um, and there's something really important about portraying that side of it too, right? You know, it's so easy to get lost in the high-octane moments that we forget the monotony of war, the amount of time that's just spent waiting, knowing that things are going to get worse, knowing that the silence, whatever peace you might find, the quiet, if you will, cannot last. And when it stops and when the action starts again, you know that you and everyone around you is very likely to die. That's important. It's important to remember the the reality of what a job it must be and how mentally taxing it must be to be a soldier who just has to go around and collect these tags and see all of these people who are just like you and the bodies that have just been left behind. And to see, like, you know, when he gets, uh, Paul, our, our protagonist here, gets the uniform and says that, it, oh, look, it belongs to somebody else, and they have to rip the tag out because... Of course it was someone else's gear. They're having to recycle every uniform they have because resources are low. And imagine being one of the women working in the laundry room, having to just wash off all of the blood so that these uniforms could be clean, so that more men can die in it, so you can go wash them all over again. That's all brutal. It's depressing. It is soul-crushing. It is oppressive. And that's the reality of war. No one gets to escape it. Oppressive is a fantastic word. Um, it is a fantastic word for this because the film does an excellent job of sort of building these set pieces and creating this tension and, and showing you with, with full vision what exactly these people are experiencing and how muddy and and grimy and there is, there is no glory there it is it is trenches of mud and water and gunk and blood and soot and just the, the makeup job that this they do in this film is fucking fantastic mm-hmm. of just making everything feel lived in and you feel like you are literally in the trenches with these people and then when there's a moment where something just just utterly you know terrifying happens, utterly terrible happens. I won't say terrifying, but terrible happens. Then the film takes a beat, and there are these transition pieces where they show landscaping, or they show trees, or water, or you know snow on the ground. These just like landscape shots to let everything breathe for a minute. Because if this movie was just you know, a straight two and a half hours of just in grime and muck and mud and just tragedy after tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, all of it would blur together into sort of this this mess. And you wouldn't re- be able to remember these very specific points in the film that are trying to hammer home this oppression, this just sense of dread and foreboding and inevitability that nothing good is ever going to happen to you again. And you need these sort of little breaks that occur. And even there's the kind of the middle part of the film where the, the soldiers aren't, you know, on the front lines anymore, where they've sort of taken up, you know, uh, I don't want to say refuge, but sort of there's this like base camp or whatever that they, you know, is on a farm and sort of, we just get sort of the, the kind of day-to-day life, of when they aren't in the trenches because they they can't have these men in the trenches literally every single day for months and months at a time. They do have to give them a break at a time. 
But all these little moments that they they humanize the characters, humanize the soldiers, humanize the environment that make each one of these just just tragedies hit all the harder. You talk about the you know very early on we have the scene where Paul is collecting the dog tags and he accidentally steps on a pair of glasses, which are his you know former classmates glasses and he just starts crying because he understands one of his friends are gone we have another moment later on in the film where he's promised another one of his classmates oh we'll always be together and they get separated and because of that separation it leads to the other classmate dying and he watches it he sees his friend get shot or sees his friend get um immolated by by a flamethrower and mm these moments just don't hit as hard if it's just moment after moment after moment after moment after moment you have to have some breath after these things right you have to have a moment for that to really kind of settle in with you and make that lasting moment and and his friend pleading for his life and the opposing soldiers just igniting him and him crawling towards a a, you know a puddle essentially and not making it And, and paul like dumbfounded there are just some incredible moments that even as some, you know, me, I, again, I bring up Saving Private Ryan. It's probably one of my favorite films of all time. And I enjoy, I enjoy war movies that I I sit here, you know, a week later, still they're, they're seared in my brain. And, and I know World War One is not, it's not a hero's war. This is not a war where anyone comes out of it. And you're like, yes, you are a hero. It is. It's fucking oh, mind-breaking, as you said. It, it broke a generation. And then for them to come back and, and barely have kind of the roaring 20s for a few years and then immediately go into the, the Great Depression, which doesn't just hit America, it hits the entire world. And Germany in particularly very, very hard because of the consequences that they face after this war. I that generation is just completely destroyed. Yeah, it's... This is a film that ultimately does what it needs to do. You know, I I don't know uh, if you've ever listened to Hardcore History, um, those of you who have spent enough time with me in the past or have followed me on Twitter knows that Dan Carlin's Hardcore History is one of the podcasts that I always turn to for stuff like this. And he had a six-part series um, on World War One. I. I believe it was Blueprint for Armageddon. Um, was yes. The name. Yes. Um, it is an incredible sequence. Um, I highly recommend it. You can get it on his site for fifteen bucks. It is essentially four hours of podcast content on average per year of the war, covering it from all sides. And you need to understand the totality of it. It's Something, uh, you know, a movie here can capture the emotions of it, can capture the brutality, the pointlessness um, of it all. But understanding how we got here and how every year played out and how each one just got worse and worse and worse and how any moment in which there might have been some peace or joy, you know, um, one of my favorites is that it was, I can't remember if it was 1918 or 1917, uh, but there was a year in which like around Christmas, the war kind of stopped for a little bit. And they even like, there was a story of like these German and French soldiers meeting out in the middle of the trenches to celebrate Christmas together. And they exchanged some gifts and played soccer. And it was a really nice story. Um, and then their generals got mad about it and immediately uh, went to force them back into the trenches and they were killing each other the next day. Because ultimately, the people were going through the same experience, right? The same scarring experience of this war. None of the, the men in the trenches had anything to gain from this. They only lost. And you couldn't you know it was it was the generals and these larger command political forces that were pushing them against each other and 
and a whole bunch of people died. It's bleak. It's tough. And this film does a very good job of capturing that from start to finish. Um, it does make it tough for me when it comes to like how I evaluate this film, because when I look at war films, you, you talk about, you enjoy war films. War films are a genre that you, uh, seek out and appreciate particularly. I don't care for war films, even the good ones, because in general, war films are a binary experience. Either they accurately capture the brutality of the environment in which these people found themselves, the true nature of war and how bloody and senseless and pointless it all becomes, and the way in which it impacts the lives of everyone who experiences it, and the br brutality across the board, especially in this war, but really in all wars, of the death and destruction that follow. Or they don't. Or they, you know, they do the thing that plays into the patriotic elements. They glorify certain heroic stories in order to convince people that there actually is some benefit to be found there, all from the safety of their recording studio, you know? And so if you ask me if All Quiet on the Western Front is a good film, my answer is going to be yes, because on the binary checkmark of did it accurately portray the brutality of World War I, yeah, it did. It did what it needed to do to be the war film that it needed to be. <sighs> Everything outside of that is just so tough for me, because I know the history. I knew where the story was going. I knew every beat that was going to happen from the very beginning. Everybody was going to fucking die. It's World War I. The charge uh, with 15 minutes left before the armistice starts is a very famous battle. Um, the most pointless sequence of deaths that that war had by far. Peace agreement already signed. Just a commander who is desperate to prove himself safe in the comfort of his own mansion, forcing everyone back into the trenches one more time just to waste lives on his own ego. I knew that was coming. I knew everything in this that was coming. It sucks to see play out because it's a heartbreaking story. But I can't say that, you know, a movie's ever going to capture the totality of what a 24-hour series uh, about uh, the war can be. So there's just the visual element, which is, I, I suppose, shocking to people who haven't spent the time to experience it. And it's important for those films to exist for that reason. Some people need to see the thing visually in their mind to get it. But... I don't know. It's just, I understand that. I'm on board. I agree with what the film has to say. I knew where it was going. And all that's left is just bleak sequence after bleak sequence after bleak sequence. And if you're not learning anything and you can't enjoy the characters and you can't, because you know they're going to die and you can't, get into the plot because you know what's going to happen. War films struggle for me. I don't know that there's a version of this film that I would be able to come away with and say that I am enjoyed or even am glad that I watched because I think the whole process is bleak. It's just tough. This, this isn't supposed to be enjoyed. And I think that's one of the things for me of, of a war movie is that it, it is about the story, right? It's about the characters. And as much as it's about, hey, I know the history and all these things, it's, it's always interesting to see how a, a writer or a screenwriter is able to take sort of the facts and the history and what actually happened and how do they craft a narrative within that confines, you know? What do they base 
you know, how much of it is based on a true story and how much of it is just like, well, yeah, you know, Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, there, there was a law that was basically like, well, if every man, you know, all the male heirs in a family were at war, you know, one couldn't go to war, essentially. It was that there were four brothers, the youngest got to stay home and the other three had to go to war. And, you know, that was to help carry on the bloodline, carry on the family name, make sure there were still people at home. Um, my uncle on my father's side uh, was drafted going into Vietnam and, you know, I, I will say luckily got out of it because he had terrible eyesight. And he had bad knees. My father was supposed to go to Vietnam. He was kind of in that next line of who was going to get drafted. But then, you know, thankfully the, the war ends. So you look at those type of things and you go, okay, well, that's how you kind of craft a very American war movie. You take some of these tropes, you take some of these ideas, you take Pearl Harbor and some of the eyewitness accounts and you go, okay, well, let's try to craft a story within this that tries to show the viewing public what it was like to be there. But at the end of the day, me as a, as a film goer, I'm never actually going to feel the terror or feel the the adrenaline that the people that actually had to view those things truly faced, you know, the, the scenes that, you know, one of the scenes that does stick out to me and uh, prior to watching the film, I had heard a little snippet of Oscar discussion and they pointed out this film was when the tanks appear and as sort of awe inspiring as, uh, as a watcher to me that that scene is, and it is a fairly dramatic scene as everything is quiet and you just know, you know, what what's the next shoe that's going to drop. And you see these hulking behemoths come out of sort of the smoke and the fog of war. Um, as, as kind of awe-inspiring that to, to me as a presentation, that is, it is nothing compared to what an actual soldier must have felt. Being in the trenches, and they do, that, that scene, they get a little bit of movement forward, right? They actually get across a stretch of no man's land into an opposing trench and they're like oh this is you know yeah we, we we made some room forward and everything goes quiet and then you just see these giant metal monsters coming at you and going over your head over the trench and you're fleeing from them because you can do almost nothing to these things unless you get super close and are able to throw a grenade because this is world war one we're talking about they this is the advent of the tank. This is the very first time a tank has actually come onto the battlefield. So you have no idea how to handle these things. We're at Saving Private Ryan. They're like, oh yeah, we got these, you know, sticky bombs we're going to put on the side of it and so on and so forth. And then following that up, you have flamethrowers just immolating people, just setting them on fire. And all you can do is run. And all of that, that work that you did and, you know, everything you accomplished to get that, you know, 10 feet forward is now completely erased because, holy shit, what are these monstrosities coming towards us? But you're never going to understand what it truly felt like to see that, how terrified you are in that moment. And I will say, I, I do think uh, that uh, Felix uh, Kammerer, um, Paul and Elric Shu, uh, Shush, who played Cat, uh, not even to try to say the full name, but Cat, the like sergeant. I think they did a good job, kind of portraying that fear and acting that fear. But at the end of the day, that's it's apples and oranges. It's an actor, you know, pretending to be afraid versus what it actually must have felt like to see that coming across the horizon. It's it, it's a good try, but. I don't know if it truly, like, if it truly makes a larger impact than, than it would have without. Well, and nothing can, right? Like, you're never going to be able to perfectly recreate, um, unless you're watching first-person footage, which in World War One isn't really going to be a thing that we have. It's... <sighs> This is where I struggle because I, I acknowledge that, you know, a lot of this, this might just be a me thing, but maybe some people listening to this uh, understand and, and, and have a similar thing with war films. So hopefully I'm not, um, I, ho I hope this makes sense to somebody. Um, all of that is true. 
And it's fascinating and it's important. And it's why I've spent a lot of time reading books on it and listening to that podcast series that I recommended. Um, I believe everyone should be aware of the totality of that war and should keep that in mind whenever they have an instinct to jump on into another one. Uh, it's critical to our understanding of humanity, the concept that we all have so much more in common with each other than the nation states that would pit us against each other want us to believe. The, the lessons here and the emotional impact is so important. And it's why the book written by someone who was there and the uh, Blueprint for Armageddon series, which is riddled with first-person accounts of people describing that in real time, you know, the diary entries of people who were there at the worst battles that humanity has ever seen, like that's all really important. It's And I'm glad that for people who haven't read what I've read, who haven't listened to what I've listened to, who don't know these stories, can see that. Because visualizing it can have an impact. And I have spent that time. I do know these stories. I All of the elements that you just described, all of these things that we could talk about from a historical perspective, and it's it, very important to talk about the history... I didn't need a movie for that. I need... When it comes to war films, there's nothing a war film can do to engage me at the level that other narratives can because the outcome is both predetermined and has a distance that will always be there because we are watching from the comfort of our own home. And we're watching a portrayal, as you said, rather than getting those stories. I can watch that scene and see someone get immolated by a flamethrower, and it is a brutal scene to watch. It's tough. Um, and, you know, I, I always make a mistake when we talk about films like this by saying whether I enjoyed it or not, because enjoyable is not the word and it's not trying to be. It's more, did I find it engaging and am I glad that I saw it? And enjoyable just becomes a, a, a term that I should be better about using, right? Because that's not what it's trying to, to do. Um, and it's the wrong term for that kind of point, I'm, you know. Um, but none of that's ever going to be as effective as hearing and reading the stories of people who saw their friend get immolated by a flamethrower. Visualizing it, there's a gratuitousness that is very common in the genre because to portray these things is to portray humanity at its worst. To portray violence and blood and just it, visuals that are so that are meant to be off-putting because that's the whole point but there's nothing to gain if you understand what the film is trying to say so to kind of peel back the, the curtain like you you had kind of mentioned in, in our pre-call when we we're talking about Topics because we do plan these podcasts out, believe it or not, folks at home. It doesn't just happen automatically. And you asked me if the film does a good job of like portraying its theme and does it hit? And it's like, what else is this film? It is it is two hours and thirty minutes of just telling you that war is bad. And like, yeah, it is. It's really fucking bad. I agree with the message of the film. I agree with how it portrays that message throughout the film. It does what it needs to do to get that message across. But I spent two hours and 30 minutes of my life on a message I already knew very well. On a story I already understood with characters that I knew were disposable from moment one. I, there's a pointlessness of watching war films to me. I don't, I don't understand the appeal. It can only ever go in one of two ways. It either does its job or it does the patriotic bullshit that glorifies things in a way that I find incredibly off-putting. I hate Saving Private Ryan, to be quite frank with you. 
I think the story of what it's trying to do, like the first sequence, the first half of that film is great. And it throws away all of that for its patriotic bullshit happy ending because it wants to leave people with a, a good feeling at the end that is entirely unrealistic to what any of this actually is. And this film doesn't make that mistake, which is why I'm going to give it a high review at the end of this. When I'm going to give it my score, it's going to sound very different than what I'm describing right now because I can acknowledge on a fundamental technical level that it's doing what it's trying to do well. I just hate having to spend my life on it. It's bleak. It's depressing. And it, it only serves to reinforce the same point over and over and over and over again. And that's if you do it well. That's the best case scenario. I liked this movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, 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 it's, it's hard for me to like transition to what, what I'm going to say out of, out of what you were saying. So um, I, I, let me put it this way. I said earlier that these scenes have been kind of scarred in my mind, you know, for the week since I've watched this. And, and that's true. This is a thinking movie. And I have also listened to Dan Carlin's uh, podcast about this. In fact, Chase is the one who recommended it to me. And I'm pretty sure I listened to it when I moved from Seattle to Vegas and then from Vegas back to New York. Like, I've listened to this. Um I am, as much as I am, you know, a war movie guy, I am a history guy. I love history. I love 20th century European history. Um, and, I, and I've loved it for a very long time since I was like in middle school. I have read and consumed tons of media about World War One and World War Two. Again, mostly World War One in terms of the context of how it leads to World War II, uh, but a, a lot about World War One. I know these stories, right? I, I understand the exact same thing that at the end of the day, all of these characters are, are disposable. And no, I didn't expect a single person to survive this fucking movie. I, I get all of that. And while I was sitting there, you know, I will say I was, I wasn't distracted, but like I paused it to use the bathroom. I got up to change out a load of laundry, but it had my attention, attention for basically the entire time I was sitting down. And it made me think. And it didn't make me think about, like, well, is war bad? Well, no shit. Again, that's what the entire movie is about. But it had me contemplate my own thoughts, right? And sort of my own uh, internal struggles that I have with where the world is right now. And my frustrations with the other side. And, you know, I will be blunt and say that I have said to to Chase probably a number of times and to other people that, well, you know what? I fucking wish the Civil War would just happen already. I just want to get it over with. And Chase is very good at reminding me, like, well, yeah, but one side has all the guns and the other side doesn't. And maybe that's a bad thing. And there is sort of, I would say, a bloodthirstiness to my desire for wanting things to be over. And this movie centered me. This movie calmed me. This movie reminded me that at the end of the day, a lot of war is just driven by ego. And it's driven by a, an inability for those that are in charge, those are, that are the, the power brokers, to come to terms with one another. And that for those of us that are in the, the underclasses, the working classes, the middle class, that don't have all the power and the money and the decision making, it is truly pointless. War accomplishes nothing. I have, uh, I've been re-listening to uh, Lincoln Park uh, recently because they, they released a, uh, a lost song um, from the Batora days and Chase again and, and you know we had been talking kind of off the side and in you know text messages about Lincoln Park and uh discussing uh, a thousand sons and you know how 
it's a it's a happier album. It's from a time where Chester and, and the other members of Linkin Park are in better places than they were, you know, the earlier stuff in Matora or at Hybrid Theory. And I never really liked the album at the time it came out. And anytime I'd listen to Linkin Park, I'd listen to Minutes to Midnight and Matora and Lincoln and uh, Hybrid Theory because those are the albums that I really liked when I was younger and that I, I felt akin to. And I've listened through A Thousand Sons probably, you know, three, four or five times over the last couple of weeks. And it also has centered me. It also has sort of brought me back to war and 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 fighting whether it's physical or metaphorical or whatever at the end of the day it doesn't actually benefit the masses it benefits those that are either in power or want power and between both of these pieces of media between this movie and between that album i've sort of realized that at the end of the day we need to take care of everyone we need to kind of try and help everyone, even those that, you know, may disagree with, with you or you may disagree with, you know, certain philosophical things. It is our job as humans to try and help them see our point of view and to listen to them on certain topics that, you know, I'm not saying that anybody's going to convince me that trans people don't deserve to live. Like, hey, trans, trans rights are human rights. Like, amen. Trans lives matter, right? You're never going to convince me of that. But maybe there is some discussion of maybe capitalism does need to exist in a way, in a certain realm that isn't this. And and that's never going to happen if I just say, hey, let's start shooting guns at each other. So did this movie hit on what it was supposed to? For me, it did. For me, it reminded me that standing on the precipice of tragedy only leads to tragedy. And that's why these films exist. And it's why it's important that they do exist. And this is, you know, not everyone thinks like me, right? Uh, it's a, it's a trite phrase, but it's an important one in context like this, because I recognize the importance of films like this existing. I recognize the power that the visuals can have for people making something that maybe they understand on an academic level make manifest, you know, like it matters. Um, and I don't mean to take away from that by having the harsher opinion towards films like this. Um, you know, I, I think that that's just a distance that I feel from it because I have remained centered on that point, uh, if not centered on other points. And, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to agree with everything that you just said, but I agree with most of it. Um, you know, certainly the importance of protecting people that you care about and being willing to help those who you disagree with because the world is better if we help build each other up rather than discarding the people who disagree with us um, as long as doing so doesn't get in the way of protecting people, you know, that that's, that's always the, the back and forth. Right. And, you know, it's a complicated philosophical conversation uh, that we're not going to finish in uh, however many minutes of this podcast we have left. I, I do want to bring up a really good article um, from uh, Jamel Bowie. Um, who is a writer for the New York Times, a, a, a outlet that I do not support, but Jamel Bowie is a very good uh, writer. Uh, and th their article, uh, When Filmmakers Don't Understand the Assignment, was a really interesting take on this film. Um, because it noted that this version of the film, as it exists, is very clearly anti-war for sure, but it gets lost in the geopolitics of it all, right? It spends some time on the negotiations and the abdication of the uh, the Kaiser and everything. And, you know, it does so to set up a final battle moment, you know, to, to capture a specific moment 
right before the armistice that needs to be, that deserves to be captured. But I, I'm just going to read a quote here. Um, Remark, uh, the original author of the book, is not as interested in the war in geopolitics as he is in the war as human absurdity made manifest. The inclusion of the political subplot and the exclusion of Paul's return home transforms all quiet on the Western Front from a psychological examination of the soldier's experience and a condemnation of war into a much simpler story of virtuous soldiers and the cynical leaders who betrayed them. I think that's a really good point as someone who loves the book. And I think that's part of the reason that this doesn't connect as well as that book does. It, it loses part of the humanity of it all in favor of trying to provide this larger context in a way that misses the mark despite how well it does at so many other things the such a huge part of the novel that isn't here is the inability to go home after this is all done to just live a normal life like none of this happened and it's touched on a little bit uh you know the paul's friend whose name i'm forgetting right now makes a comment about how he's not even looking forward to going home because he doesn't know how he's going to fit in there um but like one comment is not the scene of you know the of going home and trying to connect to your mom and no longer being able to talk to her because the perspective that she brings is so far removed from the experience that has defined your life out on the front it is a human element that is possible in a first person narrative when you tell these stories that isn't there when you take a step back in quite the same way. And that's why movies like this will never have the impact on me that a book like that would, or that the podcast breaking down all these first person accounts would. Yes, visuals can be striking. And if they stick with people and they leave an impact like it has on you, that's fantastic. I'm glad the film exists for that reason alone. And for all the people who wouldn't spend the time that you and I do, for whom I imagine it was that much more impactful, perhaps even. It's worth films like this existing for that. But any film that tries to capture all of these different aspects of war, when so much of this is how absurd and beyond any individual, all of this becomes how these interweaving systems leave someone with a personal experience that scars them or tears them up into a meat grinder. No film can do that. Not really. There may be a better version of this out there, but there's a part of this that cannot be recreated. And that disconnect is always going to be there with war films for me, no matter how well done they are. And I want to stress this. I think this film is really well done. I, I agree with Jamel's criticism, though I, I don't agree that it is uh, virtuous soldiers and cynical leaders. I, you know, I, I think that there's more to it than that, um, though it does play into a couple of those stereotypes. So, you know, it's a, it, it's a good article. You should read the article. It's a good article. But. All of that is to say that, like, different people are going to connect differently. I'm glad that the people who connect with it do. I don't plan to watch another war film unless I have to for the podcast anytime soon. Because this film just reminded me why I don't connect to them. Because they're not built to connect the way that those other mediums that I do connect with are. It's just not. I don't want to say that as a limitation of film as a genre. It's just doesn't click the same way. I don't know. I think that's, that is entirely fair. And I think that your discussion of sort of the binary structure of how, you know, war films are presented is entirely accurate. It is either a very kind of raw demonstration of how utterly horrendous war is 
or it's Saving Private Ryan where they use war as a backdrop to tell a a fictional or based on a true story story uh, for us to enjoy as moviegoers. Pulling back from the actual uh, the actual topic uh, of, of World War One and, and war is bad and evil and uh, unnecessary inherently. Uh, the film has already won 14 awards across a variety of uh, uh, nominations, including seven uh, BAFA, which is the British Academy Film Awards, uh, including Best Film, Best direct, uh, Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, uh, and Best Film, not in the English language. It has been nominated for nine uh, Oscars or Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, uh, best International Feature Film, uh, as well as Best Original Score, which I do think that the music in this was pretty uh, pretty intense uh, and fantastic, uh, as well as Best Cinematography and Best Makeup and Hairstyling. Um, coming out of this, I will say, again, I don't see how this movie takes down everything everywhere all at once, um, just because they tend modern uh oscar best pictures they tend to like happier movies um and i do think that sort of the limited uh viewing public the the type of person who is going to watch want to watch this film versus some of the others i do think is a bit limited um but i do see it probably winning best international feature film although i will say i have not seen any of the other films at this point uh but chase before we get to your top three uh, favorite dog breeds, we do need to end with a score, even though it does seem weird to give this film any kind of numeric uh, rating. So, two things. Uh, one, I really like that you called the BAFTA Awards the BAFA Awards. Like, you're just taking a hard stance against television there. I think that's really fun. Um, I, I do want to just disagree real quick on the idea that the academy awards have been here for fun films like coda won last year and that is a film uh about uh a, a, a family of deaf people and the one person who's able to hear and how disconnected they feel as a result i would not call nomad land a very happy film like i i i just i i don't think i can agree with you quite on that journey and given that i'll the western front one like i it's in play it absolutely could win i if anything i think everything everywhere all at once is much sillier than a lot of the oscar winning films have been uh because it engages in a lot of the fantasy elements that they have rejected right it's not like marvel got a bunch of praise for their multiverse shenanigans after a decade of building all of that stuff up not that everything everywhere all at once should be pulled down into the Marvel conversation. I'm just saying we don't see a lot of films like everything everywhere all at once get nominated, let alone win. So we'll see. It's going to be a very interesting race. And the and All Quiet on the Western Front winning the BAFTAs is a very good sign for how well this film will do, if not in Best Picture, at least in all these other places in which it's nominated. Um so all of that said, with my additional caveats thrown in there, um, I give this a 9 out of 10. I, it is weird to do that, because if you asked me if I would watch it again, my answer is no. If you ask me if I'm glad I watched it, my answer is no. But I think it's really well made. And if you do like war films, if war films do connect with you, if they matter to you, and if you get value out of seeing these things visualized in the totality of what they are capable of doing, I think it's a very well-done film. I would have dropped the subplot with the diplomats. I don't think that would have mattered. I wish they'd kept it more on the soldiers, maybe spend a little bit more time recreating that going home in between stints at the trenches and the absurdity of trying to reintegrate into society. Like That would have been a much better use of that time, but Whatever. That's a point. It gets a 9 out of 10. It's objectively a very good film. Uh, the people who worked on it deserve credit for what they built. And I'm never going to think about this film again. I'll think about the book a lot, though. It's a really good book. Highly recommend it. 
in my defense, Wikipedia says British Academy Film Awards. So until you hover over it, my dude. <laughs> I didn't know there was. I didn't hover over it until after you just admonished me for it. So I'm sorry. BAFTA. You know what? Fuck the British sorry, man. Don't I worry apologize. about it. You should just double yeah. down. Fuck the British. Fuck Turf Island. We don't have to give them credit. You don't have to care. It's fine. You're right. Fuck England. <laughs> Go fuck yourselves. <laughs> the entire island. All of you. Yeah. Not Scotland, not Wales. Yeah. You guys are cool, but England, well, fuck all of Wales you. Wales is complicated. Uh, <laughs> Jordan, you're fine. If you're listening to this, Jordan, you're good. <laughs> uh, that being said, I'm going to agree with you on uh, two of your three points. Um, I'm going to give it a nine out of ten as well. Um, I think that structurally it was a very well-made film. As I mentioned, I really did like the score. The, the music I thought was um, oppressing at times. The very hard kind of synth tones that they were using. Uh, very German. Very, very German. I really did enjoy it. Um, I am... Uh, I'm probably never, ever going to watch it again either. I do think it is a one-time viewing experience. Just like I think probably seeing certain pieces of artwork. is just like, yeah, I've seen that piece... I contemplated it for a while, um, and now I'm good to go. Um, but I am glad that I watched it uh, because I it did make kind of a, a connection with me in, in, I think, a little bit of a weird way um, because I do also know that war is bad. It's absurd. It's unnecessary. Um, and, you know, I just want everything everywhere all at once to win all the awards because I really love that movie. That's probably my favorite movie of like the last three years. I don't. I can't think of a movie that I would put above it that I've seen recently. So I just wanted to win everything, and I know it won't. And I know I'm going to be sad. Uh, but <laughs> would that you say you want to see it win everything everywhere? Um, was it? all at once. All at once. I kind of want Tar to win just because it might break your brain. Like I don't know what our recording session looks like no, if that no. happens. You know what? You know what? Because I know Tar is the type of movie that those fucking pretentious. West Coast elites would fucking pick. Thank you for getting me onto this soapbox, Chase. I truly appreciate it. Tell me your three favorite fucking dog breeds. Oh, happily. I'm not going to put a number on this because they're all good dogs. Um, but if I had to pick a top three, uh, Corgi's fantastic. Um, most of my favorite Twitter accounts are just Corgi accounts. Uh, always worth uh, showing them some love. Uh, old English sheepdogs. Uh, first dog I ever got to live with. My Grammy back when she lived with us, she had an old English sheepdog named Macduff. And I will love that dog forever. And all dogs like him. They just, they just want to sleep and, uh, and, and be fluffy and good. And I appreciate them for that. Um, and then English bulldogs. Um, I love a bulldog. I feel like a bulldog has the same temperament that I do. I feel very bad that we as humans have bred them in a way that to make them more adorable to us basically means they'll never be able to breathe correctly again. So I'll never be able to like get a new bulldog from the palate because like I, that just feels morally incorrect. Like I don't want to encourage that kind of breeding, but the ones that are here deserve all of the love. And just because they can't breathe doesn't mean they don't deserve love. And they certainly have a lot of love to give. So. They're my favorites. Uh, I I agree with you on the corgis. I would say they are my favorite dog of all time. They look like little loaves of bread and have cute butts. Um, I love a husky. I I just I love huskies. I love how they're basically wolves, but also playful playful uh, domesticated animals. Um, and I love pitbulls. I I truly love pitbulls. I have. Um, I've been fortunate enough to live with uh, a couple of them in the past, and I think that the breed is has been truly demonized, and it's not their fault because ninety nine point nine 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 percent of them are the sweetest, most loving animals that I have ever met in my life. And it, I always feel terrible when I look at like adoption sites, and there's a thousand pit bulls. And I can't rescue them all. So uh, Sheepdog would definitely be like four or five. Like they're, they're honorable mention at this point. Um, my sister has a Sheepadoodle and it is an awesome dog. I, I love I love Bowie so much. He has such light little paws when he like jumps up on you that you're like, because he looks like a big dog. And then he has these like dainty ballerina legs that you're like, oh, wow, you weigh absolutely nothing. So 
Good. All dogs are good dogs. Pet all the dogs if their owners give you permission to. They're good dogs, Brent. Truly. Chase, if people want to send you photos of dogs, where can they do so on the interwebs? <laughs> you can find me at Chase Wassener on Twitter. You can find the podcast at Rough Drafts Pod. Um, of course, you should be subscribed to our Rough Drafts feed if you want both this and the Steam Cleaners podcast in which Walter and I talk about some video games we've been playing every two weeks. Different games every episode, so hopefully you find one that clicks for you. Um, but of course... If you don't want to deal with that, if you're not much of a gamer, uh, you can continue to follow the movie podcast Final Cut at that its own feed as well. And you guys can find me at CADs underscore LOL. Um, this is technically the last episode of the Final Cut podcast that will come out prior to the Oscars. Uh, but I do know we are going to do one more Oscar movie that'll come out uh, the, the Monday the 13th, which is the day after the Oscars. And uh, much like we said, fuck the English earlier, uh, <laughs> the setting of our next movie also says, fuck the English. Until then, goodbye, Internet.